the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, Frank Bueller is on the podcast today. And uh, Frank is my best friend. We talk about friendship. We talk about why friendship is so hard. What happens when friends turn on you? The problem with high performance when it comes to forming great relationships. And then we also talk about multi-use church facilities and the future of church. And this is a bit of a different episode, so I hope you really, really enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by ServeHQ. Onboarding new volunteers is tough, but it doesn't have to be. Check out ServeHQ for the volunteer onboarding process that will leave your volunteers prepared and motivated. Go to servehq.church and buy Glue. Glue makes it incredibly easy for unchurched people to connect to a local church. If you are ready to dive in, go to glue.us slash reach if you want to reach more people. Well, hey, I happen to know that the majority of you who are listening to this episode don't actually subscribe to the podcast. That's just a podcasting fact. But here's what I'd love for you to do. If you enjoy this episode, would you hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast? Because the more subscribers we have, the better the guests get. So I would love for you to be able to do that. And then if you enjoy this, and I think you will, send it to a friend send it to somebody nearby that you care about. And that's how we spread the word. And that's how we get to make this show better every single time. So Frank has been a friend of mine for a long time. We talk about it, but here's his official bio. As the co-founder and first employee of Faze Family Center, Frank helps churches launch a multi-use strategy of their own without being alone. He also serves as a chief of staff at local church, a multi-site ministry with campuses in North Georgia. Before opening Phase, he served as the Director of Leadership Development at Orange, an organization that works with more than 10,000 churches. And before Phase and Orange, Frank was the Executive Director of Family Ministry at Elevation Church, one of the fastest growing and largest churches in America. We talk about all of that and how he has multiple jobs at once. He's also the father of five and the husband to Jessica. He's passionate about equipping leaders to grow at the local church. And, uh, well, would love to have a conversation with you. We will talk about that toward the end of the podcast. So onboarding new people is really hard when you're looking for volunteers. And if you have a confusing or complicated process, it actually leads to people slipping through the cracks. And that is something you don't want. So how do you get a clear and simple onboarding process? Well, to do that, you need a good and reliable system. And that's where ServeHQ comes in. ServeHQ provides simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training or you can use their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people. And then you get people who are prepared and motivated. So check out servehq.church for the volunteer onboarding process that will leave your church volunteers prepared and motivated. That's servehq.church. And Devin Klein leads the Explorer Connections and Outreach Projects at Glue. When I caught up with her, I learned that Glue has connected over 150,000 unchurched people with local churches. So I asked her how Glue makes it easy for unchurched people to connect with churches and what church leaders can learn from this. Here's what she had to say. Yeah, Carrie, it has been such an honor and a privilege to help make these connections between individuals who are searching online into local churches who are ready to help. How it works is when somebody is searching online for help with relationships or anxiety or because they're interested in connecting into 
a local faith community, um, they might respond to a quiz or an ad online where they have the opportunity to fill out a form. And on the back end, Glue is matching that individual based on their questions, based on their needs, um, into a local church who has said, I want to help the people in my community. And so what explorers are telling us is that they are more than ever um, open to connecting with individuals in a local church. And we have seen people who have moved over the last couple of years and they disconnected from their faith community. They're ready to find a new one. Um, they're experiencing a life event um, or just general loneliness, um, and they want to connect with individuals in a church. And so what I think churches can le- learn is that people in their community have needs, that they are open for connections, and the church is ripe and ready to be responders and to help these individuals who might be looking for an, a new faith community. So if you want more, go to glue.us slash reach. That's glue.us slash reach. And now my very personal, I hope very beneficial conversation with Frank Bueller. Frank, welcome back. Oh, I'm glad to be here with you, Carrie. This will be fun. Like to make it formal and record something from our conversation that we have all the time. But now we're having it exactly. Uh, You know, other than my wife, you're the only human I talk to every single day. It's true, and it's the best, right? Yeah, it is the best. It is the best. So let's start with the text exchange that we've been doing now for over three years. It started during lockdown. I'd love for you to tell the story. I think it was my idea, and I was really excited that you said yes. But I'd love you to tell the story of how it happened and and what happens with that. Yeah, and then you can correct me and and fix whatever (laughs) I I said wrong, or you remember differently. My wife does that a lot, so she remembers things Uh differently than I remember. Well, that's what marriage is for, right? Correction. That's right. So we started um, a month after kind of lockdown, texting every single day. The best thing from the day before, the worst thing from the day before, and one thing to be praying for, for the current day. And we kind of put some parameters around it. It had to be personal. So it wasn't best for somebody else or something cool we saw, but this was really us reflecting on yesterday and looking ahead to today. And, and you know, when you've been doing that for three years, like we have, um, you really have two options. You either start to do the same thing every time, uh, which isn't healthy or good, um, or you start to be really reflective and you're mindful about the responses and you're thinking through, is that really my best or is that really the worst? Or was there actually something worse that maybe uh, a little less comfortable sharing, but probably should. And so kind of land in that space of going, ah, this is good. It's become great for me to start each day with a... uh, taking a few moments to just to reflect on what's happening around me and in me. Uh, I don't know if that was the original intent. I think it was us just trying to stay connected, uh, but it's been so life-giving to me. Yeah, likewise, you know, and I think you're right. It's, I mean, there are definitely recurring themes if it's our kids or uh, something that's going on inside of us or an issue we're working on. Um, but, you know, it is like I, I get up in the morning I read the Bible, I pray, and then I go to text Frank. Like usually it can vary any time between 4.30 in the morning and 8 a.m., depending on the particular day and time zone. And we rarely miss a day. But it's like, it's this, the format is as simple as it can be. Best, worst, pray. That's it. Just best colon. Usually it's just a line. Worst thing to happen. Sometimes it's not much, which is a good day. And then pray. Can you pray about this for me? And sometimes it's like barely three sentences and sometimes you get a paragraph, but 
I feel like we've gotten to know each other so much better. And of course, our friendship is a long distance friendship. Like you live in Atlanta, I live north of Toronto. So we see each other a few times a year, but we don't, but otherwise we just connect every day. Yeah. And every once in a while, that best worst prayer, there'll be some little comment that you make or I make that uh, leads to a spontaneous instant phone call, right? We're like, mm-hmm. wait a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey. nope, that's, yeah. Let me check in on that one. The tone of that or something's off. Not a lot, but every once in a while, it's just like, I need to, I need to check on what you just said. What would you say the difference is, having done that for three years now, I can think of other people I know who like call a best friend every morning. There's one guy, I don't want to name names, but everybody would know who he is. Just calls his best friend every morning. They check in for 10 minutes and and they they hang up. That's it. What, is, what has that done for you, that kind of daily connection that you and I have? The daily connection, first of all, it, it's forced me, good, bad, and different. I want this to happen, but it's forced me to be transparent, like to be honest with someone, be vulnerable with someone, which is, I think, really important. Um, and you know, because we have a true friendship, um, it's forced me to uh, really wrestle with my thoughts. So typing it out, there's been plenty of times where I've started to type a best and then went backwards and delete, delete and go, that is so superficial or that wasn't the best. That was the easy answer. And so even though we don't, we're, we're not super intense about it. I think we are really intentional about it. And I think it's been a game changer. I think it's, it's, uh, caused us to have a, a lifelong, lasting, strong friendship. We understand where each other's at, even though we don't, we don't even see each other every Sunday. You know, it's not like we go to church together mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like this is, we've had to be intentional and I think it's healthy. And I probably tell somebody at least every couple of weeks about how we text and recommend that to them to do with their best friends. Cause uh, I think it's something special. Yeah. And you know, I love, I think we've gotten to know each other so much better. We've known each other for over 10 years, but there are times where I'm tempted to give you the easy answer. And then I'm like, I can't do that. That's Frank. Like I can't, I can't just, you know, oh, nothing's wrong. And sometimes I don't know about you, but I find it embarrassing to tell you what's worst or what I want you to pray for. Like there's sort of a, not an image thing, but just a, gosh, I wish it was better news today. And it's not. And then other days really are good news, but it forces me to be transparent and on a daily basis. And it really helps me feel seen and understood. And Absolutely. For. And because we keep the same format, I think we do identify patterns, like you said. And in fact, the mm-hmm. last time you called me, I'm sure you remember this, it wasn't long ago. I put, and every once in a while for the worst section, you and I will put not much, like there's nothing real bad going on. Mm. I put not much in the best for a previous day, and I had never done that before. And I remember you were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, can you whoa, answer your phone right now? Yeah. And, and it was yeah. one of those days where I'm looking back going, I would have rather slept in. The world didn't come to an end, but there was, it felt like there was nothing good that came out of that day. And I was just being honest. Mm-hmm. wasn't being mopey. I was just trying to be honest. But mm-hmm. you, by keeping that same structure, I think it, allows us to identify patterns where we can speak up. Sometimes we ask questions about what we sent and sometimes we heart it and move on about our day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You and I have both talked about struggling to make friends. And, you know, the weird thing is you're connected to a million leaders. I'm connected to a million people. But um, on a personal level, it's been 
more difficult for me to really form close friendships. And we've been best friends for a number of years. Uh, I'm happy to weigh in on this, but I'd like to start with you. Why, why has friendship, making authentic personal friendships, been difficult for you? Oh, there's a lot there, Carrie. Um, yeah, yeah, we got time. Yeah, I, I mean, candidly, I mean, there's plenty of brokenness in my life, and you know, just my past and my history and my family, and um, I think there's lots of reasons for that and difficult transitions I've navigated in my life. Um, but if I put that aside and I just say, okay, you know, what am I hard to be friends with? You know, what what makes it difficult for someone else to be friends with me? As as Jeff Henderson said back in the day, what's it, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Right. I mean, I've got to ask that question when it comes to friendship. And I started to reflect and, and think about it not long ago. And I started to think about my transition away from elevation, right? Hardest decision in my life. You know that. Um, I was on yeah. staff there. That's where my friends were. That was my church. And now I'm leaving, right? I mean, it was my whole world flipping upside down. And as I was leaving and moving to Atlanta, I had this jarring reality. You see, when I was moving to Atlanta and I was halftime there and halftime in Charlotte, I thought I had quite a few friends in Atlanta. I really did. Um, but what I found was the people that I thought were friends and I had them in that category were really acquaintances or alliances, uh, ministry partners. But the way I discovered it was they would text me and be like, hey, let's go to lunch. And I'd be excited just to hang out and catch up and just process my transition and hear how their family's doing. And they would bring a notepad and paper and a pen mm. and had some questions. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this is another relationship that I would have considered a friendship that's in a different category. And that's what yeah. helped me see when that started happening over and over again, that not only did I not have many friendships, they were all kind of kept at a certain superficial level uh, but man, even some of the ones that maybe I, I had told myself were friends, maybe really weren't. And it was like, oh, oh, it was a jarring reality for me. And so I started to get frustrated by that. And then I started to wonder why my friends from Elevation weren't reaching out to me. Uh, so mm -hmm. I had categorized some people in the wrong category. That was, my, that was my fault. I put them in the wrong category. But then I was like, what about these other people? And somewhere along the way, I realized that the burden for friendship uh, fell on me. I was the one that was leaving. I left Charlotte. Mm -hmm. The friends that I had in Tennessee, I'm the one that moved. They're still there. And so the intentionality and the pursuit of friendship, I think it was on me. And I just thought it would kind of naturally happen. And what I've learned, and I, I still don't do it very well. I'm trying. I think you and I do it pretty well. But um Friendship takes a level of intentionality, but doesn't yeah. typically reside at a high level of priority for me. I'm not, when it comes to prioritizing mm. new friends, additional friends, um, that always gets bumped. I can give you five things I prioritize right now over, over doing friendship, you know, and, and trying to facilitate another friendship. Uh, even though it'd be healthy, even though it's, it's not that I don't want some additional friendships, I just prioritize other things. And I've, I've, Realize that when you're as busy as we are, you have as much capacity and opportunity. I think we have to be even more intentional because it's not going to happen organically. Yeah. You know, I, I really appreciate you categorizing relationships that way. And I've talked about this on the podcast. You and I have talked about it. But last year, I read Arthur Brooks from Strength to Strength. 
He's got a section in there, uh, and I guess it was his son who gave him these categories, but real friends versus deal friends, right? So real friends are, who are the people who are going to be around no matter what? Suddenly you're unemployed, you're not doing the podcast, you're not Mr. Popular anymore, you're not CEO of FaZe. Who are your real friends? And I've talked to so many leaders, Frank, and some mutual friends of, of yours and mine who left a job and were just shocked when their phone stopped lighting up. It's like, wait a minute, I was getting 25 texts a day and now I'm getting two a week from the people I used to work with, if I'm lucky, on a good day. And again, Arthur Brooks is like, yeah, those are deal friends, not real friends. And it's so hard to disentangle in leadership because we're surrounded by people. And did you find this? I don't know whether you found this or not. I found, um, you know, because ministry is people that I started to almost have, like my downtime was I didn't want to be with people. Have you ever had that? Absolutely. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Care, care, absolutely. I mean, that's simple enough. It's like, absolutely. I, I think um, uh, I've, I've come home many a time since that. I've used all my words for the day. Like mm-hmm. I, I'll go mm-hmm. for a walk with Jess. You know, she and I go for a walk every single night. Like that's our catch up time. Yeah, yeah. There are days where I'm like, I don't, I don't have any words words left. I've used all my energy and my words for the day and I'm not going to get rejuvenated. And I think a lot of leaders are this way by going out and hanging out uh, with people. I I need, you know, I'm a little introverted, high energy, but introverted Mm -hmm. to where my recovery time, I need some downtime. And so when you run at a high level and your intensity is super high all the time, I think that makes, um, it makes you longing for downtime where you're just kind of uh, you don't have to be on, even if it's for friends, which is ridiculous, uh, to be honest. Like you should not have to feel on when you're with your friends, but when you're trying to form friendships, you are on. Like that's different mm-hmm. than where mm-hmm. you and I are at, where I don't feel on when you and I talk. We're we're just friends. But if I'm trying to form friendships in the midst of everything else going on, uh, I, th- I think I struggle. And part of it's I don't make it a priority and the other part's I... I don't know if I want to continue to be on today or if I'm ready to take it off a little bit. Mm -hmm. You've also said to me that, you know, you've got Jess, you've got your kids and you're good. Like you could easily live in that world where your family becomes your personal circle. Is that true? Is that a distortion and any comments on that? Uh, I will say it's true and not healthy. Like, I mean, I was <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think uh, it's I, a ministry I, trap. I think it's a trap for people in ministry. They tell, retreat wait, into their families. Tell me more about that, about retreating into their well, families. Well, I mean, we're just going back and forth. But yeah, yeah I, I've, I've seen that pattern where a lot of people look at their family as their refuel time. And I just came from five days with my kids who are now grown. They were all here for five days. And we had a blast. Like, it was amazing. But, you know, I've also been an empty nester for a decade, and I also realize how important it is to have real friendships and meaningful friendships, and I'm no longer the lead pastor, so that takes a lot of the, the that dynamic out of the mix. But, yeah, I just, I see that, like, you know, Barna data would show that the vast majority of pastors really don't have anyone they can turn to other than their family. Sometimes family relationships are strained, sometimes they're not, and I wanted to ask the question because I think it's a pretty typical pattern for people in ministry or parachurch jobs. 
Yeah, I think so. I think it's in many ways it's safe. Uh, you know, you're you're not exposing yourself um, to criticism or uh, accidentally being mm. too transparent or vulnerable some way where it's going to, you know, come back later and be a problem. So I think it makes it safe mm. and easy. Um, but I do think in ministry and parachurch and just in in that world in general, because your transitions are so wrapped up, friendships, work, faith, it's all wrapped together. And then now as God, now God is moving me somewhere else. Um, I think that makes it where it's a little hard to, to reach back, to maintain friendships and to reach forward. So I, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm not saying mm. it's okay to lean in on family. I do recognize that it's it's hard. I think it's hard for everybody. I think friendships are complicated. And in today's day, I think they're more complicated than ever. I truly believe that. I'm not making an excuse why we don't or shouldn't, but I do think it's difficult. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, Dunbar's number, again, which is a concept I revisit regularly, says you really have the bandwidth for three to five close friends, right? So we're not talking about, but because I think most of us know 100, 1,000, 2,000 people, we assume we have friends when in reality we're kind of all alone. Uh, I know just for the record, I, I asked you the question, you know, for me, I think when I was a kid, no fault of anybody's, we just moved a lot. And I remember making a resolution when I was 10 years old because I had to leave my best friends 300 miles down the road. And I'm just like, like that's it. I'm not making friends anymore. And that was, that was a stupid thing to do when you're 10, but I don't know, I was 10 years old. And ironically, we would end up tracking with that group of friends for the next 15 years, but I kind of sealed off part of my, my heart. And then, you know, three different colleges, met my wife, settled down. She's way better at relationships than I am. But, um, you know, that, and then I got into ministry and, and what you said, I think is so important. I, I think I might write a book on this at some point, but like ministry can be, doesn't have to be, but can be in its present form, a toxic cocktail because what you believe is suddenly what you do, and everybody that you connect with is somehow associated with your work. They're your work, but they're also your friends. But your friends can get mad at you because you preached a bad sermon or you're not leading the church correctly. And then they they bail on you and it just becomes this toxic cocktail. So I understand and, you know, that that idea of being peopled out where you just kind of disappear, I can understand why relationships are hard for people in ministry. I don't know, I'm kind of rambling. Any other further thoughts on friendship in the church for I, leaders? I think it's difficult. And you and I talked about, you know, this being part of our conversation today. Yeah. And I pulled up um, an old statement from Eugene Peterson that I thought mm -hmm. might be helpful for people. It's certainly helpful for me. Um, it's... Uh, challenging when I read it every time. He says this, and we can link to it in the show notes later or yeah. whatever and make some people have it. But it says this, each of us has contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who the moment they set their eyes on us begin calculating what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. That's that deal, friends, you were talking about. He said, we meet hundreds of people who take one look at us make a snap judgment, and then slot us into a category so that they won't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are, and we're in constant association with them. So we become less. And then he says this, this is the wrap up. 
He says, and then someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use, is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on in us, is secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attack our strengths, recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions, confirms what's deepest within us. They're known as a friend. And Carrie, I mean, Mm. just being honest Mm. with you, you are like, this is too late in life for this to be okay, but it's true. You are my, my, truly my closest friend, but probably my purest understanding of friendship. Um, being so young and being so dysfunctional in my family, bouncing around, um, not knowing how to, to navigate normal, healthy relationships. Man, I was burning through people, all types of people, and just kind of bouncing around, bouncing around, bouncing around. And then as soon as I started to kind of mature, I'm kind of an old soul, but as I started to mature, then I got on this track to just achieve and drive and win. And everybody was affirming that. Oh, wow, Frank, you're doing this and you're doing this. Go, go, go. Well, the problem was that achieving, that drive, that winning did not require friends. It required deal friends, to your point. And so that put me on a, a train that, that, gosh, it hasn't been till recently. How sad is this? I'm over 40, I'm 40, about to be 44 years old. And I'm 35 and starting to figure out that I don't have any healthy, real, strong friendships. Like that's problematic. Um, uh, maybe I'm the only one, but uh, like that's... No, fast forward to your 50s. It's, it's a dominant theme of my 50s. It's like, who are my real friends going to be in this next season of life? Because I think like a lot of people in ministry, you know, I've been in the same community 20 eight years this year. So we we didn't move. Like, we're still here. And, you know, that means 28 years. But you go through cycles of friends. And we had a couple disintegrate and evaporate around the time I burned out 18 years ago, et cetera. And so you go through some cycles and you're really thinking, now we've got some, my wife has a couple of lifelong friendships, which are incredible. And they're mutual friends. But, you know, I'm like, okay, I need my three to five. And you're definitely at the center of that three to five. And, um, you know, I have reflected a lot over the last couple of years, went from 3,500 people calling our church home to like two or three real authentic deep friendships that emerged out of that. So thousands of people who disappeared. And again, it's not a criticism against them. I played a role in their life. I was their pastor. You know, you get it. At Elevation, you were a staff member, you were a boss, you were a friend, you were whatever. You played a role in their life. But yeah, it's very confusing. And I think the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you is because of our friendship, and we're going to get onto other subjects as well, but just because of the loneliness epidemic data that I see coming out in poll after poll about leaders which is, which is terrifying. And if you want to kill yourself, you know, it's either take up smoking or have no friends. It's about the same mortality. You know that, you know that research, right? Like loneliness is, is deadly. So, okay, here, we're getting really personal. I think part of what, you know, I'm an Enneagram eight, you're a three. So we're a little different that way. But part of this is, is fear of intimacy, fear of being seen. You know, it's very easy to do this show and people see parts of you, but 
a true friend sees all of you. And you've sat with me on some very bad days that I've had. Does that, does that bother you at all? That kind of intimacy or what is like, for me, that can be a, a barrier to real friendship. Oh, Carrie, absolutely. It's, I mean, when you're at your most vulnerable, it's, it's one of these things where you don't, when you're trying to build new friendships, you don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know how, what, what level of vulnerability or transparency is enough till they turn on you, until they're mm. offended mm-hmm. by your, your sin or your brokenness. And so what we end up doing is testing the water and getting to a certain place and go, okay, I know I haven't crossed the line, but, but the next the next truth, the, the next moment I tell them might be the thing that pushes them away. So we'll just keep it right here. Where when you have friends growing up, like uh, high school friends or, or younger even, that have been with you the whole journey, they've known your mess the whole time. But as <laughs> leaders, now I'm in a new city, a new part of the country, and I'm trying to uh, build friendships and, and do it in the right way. And I'm, I'm, along the way, I'm, I'm cautiously evaluating, I don't know if it's all consciously, but cautiously evaluating how, how real of a friendship is this? How, how transparent can I be until they snap, until they realize, oh, no, 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 I thought he was better than that. I, mm. I really thought he wouldn't be that way. And next thing you know, they're snapping back. And that fear of, I'd rather take, and maybe this is a dumb statement, Carrie, I'd rather take a half friend than no friend and so we go halfway with people because that's at least something that's human, that's humane uh, for us to do that. I guess I'd rather have that than not even have the half. And so I think there's a timidity there. And of course, it gets magnified and complicated, I think, uh, as you gain leadership and influence. Um, it, is, it pushes people away, I think. I think it complicates things. Um, Friends that were did think they were friends. You both would have said you're friends, but now you're somebody's boss, or um, suddenly you get the promotion that they thought they were going to get, or um, they don't they don't understand why you got that opportunity, or why you made the decision you made, or suddenly because of your leadership, you now have knowledge that you can't share with them. So maybe I'm willing mm-hmm. to share personal mm-hmm. things, but I can't share some of the professional things. And it used to be all muddied together and it was fine. But now suddenly there's a separation. I know I've navigated that at times where I've had to hold information close to my chest with someone that was at least half a friend and we were moving that direction. And they're like, wait a second, why didn't you tell me? I found out like I was everybody else. I thought we were closer than that. And so I think the with leadership comes this extra knowledge and the behind the scenes knowledge and opportunity that suddenly makes people naturally feel left out. And ironically, you find yourself at the top of an organization and you're standing there alone because you've left everybody out along the way, right? And sometimes not even by your own choice, maybe. I don't know. Hmm. I should have gotten on a plane. I feel like we need to be in the same room. Yeah, we may have done <laughs> to have this, this conversation. That's exactly right. This is good. This is good, oh. Frank. I think you're reading a lot of people's mail. And I mean, part of it, it's not justifying or excusing behavior as a leader, but there's a reason why leadership and friendship are often mutually exclusive. You're right. 
people people turn on you. That happens, right? Somebody and people get jealous and insecure. And you get jealous and insecure. And yet, you know, at the heart of friendship, I think, is the heart of the gospel. And one of my favorite definitions of the gospel is Tim Keller's, the late Tim Keller, who simply said, um, the gospel is fully known, fully loved. That's it. It's just, I fully know you. I see you on your bad days, your good days. You're like, crap. We had a phone call. You called me a couple of weeks ago. And without going into specifics publicly, I just didn't know what to do. We had a big surprise come along and I'm like, geez, I'm stuck. And you're like, all right. It was 8 a.m. I'm sitting in my backyard. You're like, all right, let's talk through this. And so helpful, so clarifying. And we've been, you know, fully known. And, but then also fully loved, fully accepted. And I think the, the myth, of course, is that if I'm going to be fully known, if you're going to see who I am, you're not going to love me. Or in order to be fully loved, then you can't really know me. You have to love this image of me or this projection of me. And I think real friendship, and in many ways, like real marriage, you know, is fully known, fully loved. So, Carrie, I think it's only, I'm processing real time, but mm. I think... This fully known, fully loved concept, while I agree that's what we're longing for, that's what we're pursuing, finding it in in people is there's a level of risk that leaders have been taught not to take on, right? So I'm mm-hmm. I'm a high risk guy. I'm a high venture capital guy, private equity guy. I can go out and bring stuff to life. You know that I'm I'm I definitely lean high on the risk scale. If I took any tests, mm-hmm. um, I, and I've taken them before. Like I'm out there. I'm I'm willing. I'm young, and I'll, I'll take risks. Like it's fine. And so I'm like, okay, bring it on. But there's a level of risk where as a leader, you're having to mitigate risk all the time. Your decisions are going, what's the return on investment for this risk? We're being taught that. That's in our brain, whether we're a church leader or business leader, what's the return on this risk? Is it worth taking this chance? And the cost in friendship is to say, is my full transparency worth the risk of losing it all? Because it's not, it's not a partial loss. If you cross that line beyond where somebody's willing to go in friendship and being fully known and fully loved, the, the risk isn't that we take a minor step backwards. I think if we find that there's a line there that's unacceptable for someone, when mm. we cross that line, it is a full fallout. It's a full loss. And so it's one of these things where, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're at, risking jackpot at Vegas and you're all in on some game where it's like, man, it feels like there's a very slim fraction that I'm going to be able to win. More than likely, I'm going to lose when I let them fully in. And losing is potentially losing all of it, not just moving backwards a little. And yet as leaders, we're taught to weigh those. And so I think along the way, as we move up in an organization, we're just more cautious about being fully known because we know the risk of, once again, I'd rather have a half friend than no friend. And I think that's mm-hmm. oftentimes the, the case. It's not like, a, oh, we can get up to three quarters, then we mosey back down just a little bit and we ebb and flow. We're either in this and we're growing in it or it's kind of gone. Well, 
And I think I think that's been one of the nice things in the evolution of our friendship over the last decade plus is, I mean, it did literally start, you mentioned note-taking. You asked to, to meet with me or volunteered to meet with me or I volunteered to meet with you when I was at a conference. You showed up with a notepad. And then I'm like, I really like this Frank guy. And eventually, I mean, we still take notes off each other, but for the most part, we just talk, right? But... We got past that stage, but what's been interesting in these last three plus years since we've been texting every day is I've sensed the the vulnerability has gone up in stages, right? It's like, hey, I had a colossally bad day yesterday, or here's what happened between Tony and I, or you know, here's one of the struggles that you've got with something at work or something at home. And I think each time it was an embrace. It was like, oh, thank you for sharing that with me. And I never mind hearing about your problems. I don't like still sharing my problems with you. You know, I feel like I should be the up, the upbeat guy or the guy who doesn't have any issues. And that's, that's just not true. It's not, it's not human. So yeah, that's super helpful. Um, Carrie, high performance. Was, and, yeah, yeah, it was say more. A crisis. Like, our relationship pivoted, our friendship pivoted as I was going through a crisis and I saw another side of you. So, so let's, let's be super clear. Like yeah. we, went, we went from, I pursued you as a mentor. I uh, saw so you as this mm. thought leader that I could learn from back before there was a podcast or anything. You were blogging yeah. and I was commenting on blogs and I was like, man, this guy's brilliant. I just want to learn from him. And so I sought you out as a mentor then we realized that even though in many ways we're different, we're alike in a lot of ways. And so we started to connect and the frequency increased, but it was around ministry, right? Oftentimes how it would be with anybody else in leadership or mm -hmm. whatever, we're in proximity to each other. We're wrestling with similar ideas. But then I had a crisis that I was navigating and you were on a mission trip with compassion on another part of the planet and you called me every morning, but I knew that you were with a group of pastors that honestly, in my mind, I thought were more influential, more important, more whatever you want to add to that, all the mores. Um, and yet every morning you were calling just to say, hey, are, are you okay? Like, what, what, what can I pray for you about? But it wasn't a text you saw in that moment. And that was a, we had gone from mentorship to uh, a professional friendship to a little bit more of a friendship. But that was a pivotal moment for me because I was having to be transparent and you were one of the only people that was calling to make sure I was okay in that season. And so suddenly, I, I do think that helped accelerate our friendship was navigating that together. But we weren't in the mud together. You came down in the mud with me, right? You came and joined me. You didn't have a problem. I had the problem. And you were like, hey, I'm, I'm going to come be with you. I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to encourage you. That was a, that was a pivotal moment uh, where I then knew, oh, you're seeing some of my flaws, some of my emotions, some of my sinful emotions where I was frustrated and angry and sad and all the things that I was going through and wasn't thinking clearly. And yet during that process, you were like, okay, okay, well, let's keep some perspective and I want to be praying for you. And so it was that. That was a, a moment. So I, I don't know how long it would have taken for our friendship to develop to where it is now without that kind of crisis moment that was there. So maybe some of the hope in this is 
we, we find a few people that we think we can be friends with and it'll be some of the circumstances around that help vet that friendship for people. So it's okay to have some half friendships that you're kind of pursuing, trying to figure out until something kind of becomes a, a pivot or a kind of a key moment. I don't know. What do you think about of, that? Oh, I, I totally agree. And one of the, the things that um, one of my counselors told me years ago was that as, as a good friendship was dissolving, he said, Carrie, friendships need to be mutual. And I think you know, in some cases, I've been more anxious than the other person has been. But what I've found in you and a handful of other friendships is a deep mutuality. It's like one day I'm sitting in the mud and you come in and sit with me. And sometimes you have advice and sometimes you just sit with me and go, hey, that's really too bad. And then other times I sit with you in the mud and try to listen in and and just just be with you. But I think that kind of mutuality, it's like, all right, I was vulnerable with you. You're vulnerable with me. We've done that like a thousand times over on the micro level and a couple times on the macro level. And I think that's what makes it safe. It's like, you know, I know you live in Georgia, so you don't have a lot of ice, but we have ice here. And, you know, that whole idea, is the ice safe? How do you find out? Well, you don't just drop yourself into the middle of a lake and say, gosh, I hope this thing isn't going to crack open and I'm going to drown, die of hypothermia. You stand on the edge and you test it out and you look at it and you step a little bit and then you step a little bit more and a little bit more. And eventually you see a snowmobile or an ATV go by and you're like, okay, this is probably pretty safe here, right? But you don't go all at once. Otherwise, that's how you die. And so it's one of those things where I think we've we've done that really, really well. And I think sometimes you can get so lonely in friendship that you kind of lunge at somebody. And I've done that in the past. Like I've lost a friend from going too far too fast, like when I was not in a good season, it's like, whoa, I can't handle this. Or you just hold back, which is what a lot of leaders do, and you don't you don't build those friendships. So this is this is a good, you know, I think of this as turning a jewel. Like, I don't know that we've solved all the world's friendship issues, but I think by talking through some of the unique challenges, the fears, the vulnerabilities, hopefully some people are helped by by reaching out to a friend or, or just booking a coffee with somebody or saying, hey, you want to start this text thing of best, worst, pray? Like that that can be a really good thing. I think we need to be better connected. Um, you, you mentioned something I do want to look at for a little bit longer. Um, do you think there's a relationship or a tension between high performance and deep friendships? Absolutely. I don't know if I have the science. <laughs> I'm going to be like, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Harvard Business Review writes all their thing about leadership and loneliness and Forbes writes it. And there's been books written on leadership and loneliness. And it's for a reason. But I do think high performance, high performance conveys speed, speed mm-hmm. of thought, speed of action. Um High performance means going above and beyond what other people are doing. It's not performance, it's high performance. And so high performance requires more. It requires more thought, more energy, more effort, and it has to be at the cost of something. So if you take your car out uh, right now and you go to the bottom of your driveway and you're backing up Mm -hmm. and you start to go, if you accelerate from zero to 60 miles per hour, probably kilometers for you. I don't know how to do that conversion. I can do miles. Mm-hmm. More than five kilometers, probably like 45 yeah, or 70. That's 100. That's 100, but that's okay. 100. So you're going yeah. zero to 100 kilometers an hour. Um, 
So you're going, and if you just ease into it and it takes you a little while to get there, that burns way less fuel than if you just punch it and go, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. High performance implies there's a lot of punching and going. There's a lot of fast acceleration. And so there always is a cost. Something is burned there. Now, it doesn't have to be burned like fallout, like massive. You're just running over people. I'm not implying that. Like you don't have to be hateful or mean. But Mm. if you're going to perform at a high level, there's going to be a cost. And what I've seen is that more often than not, that's in friendships. Because people will first, uh, high-performing leaders, they're in their spot for a reason. So whatever they're doing is clearly a priority for them. Ministry Mm. or business or making money or whatever it is, that's clearly a priority. Hopefully, family is up there as a priority if they have a family that they're not leaving them by the dust or, you know, in the dust. So suddenly, friendships, personal activities, maybe some habits, unhealthy habits, eating or diet or whatever, that's the cost of performing at a high level, right? And so I think that's part of it. But I also think people that are high level and high achieving, um, I don't have science for this. But I have to think that their brain just fires a little differently. Uh, Mm -hmm. Their thinking is a little differently. The mental leaps they take in conversation, the speed at which they're making decisions, and that can make it uh, difficult to be on the other side of a high-performing leader. They're thinking fast. They're being super decisive. If nobody else makes a decision, they're the first one to make the decision. And so that can either be awesome Finally, somebody else picks the restaurant. Um, Then the other side is like, well, you didn't even ask me what restaurant. You just went ahead and picked one. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just trying to be efficient because we got to go out and do this. You know, so uh, suddenly when you do that with everything, uh, I think the very thing that you're being affirmed for over and over and over again. I mean, Carrie, when, when people walk up to you and they see you at, we saw each other in Atlanta just a few weeks ago at a conference. Mm-hmm. We hung out for a couple of days. It was awesome. Um, yeah, it was great. Uh, and by the way, we, we, you did some speaking and we did some teaching while we were there, but it, it was all because we just wanted to hang out. That's there was a lot of hangouts in the green room. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of hangout. Uh, but nobody walked up to you other than me to say, man, you're great at friendship. What they said was, your ministry impacted my life. Your teachings mean the world to me. Your book changed my life. What are they affirming? All the things that you're achieving and driving. And so what does that make you want to do? Have greater impact. Have a, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. go and stay on the wall. Don't stop now. But nobody's affirming going, you know what? I think that the way you're investing in friendship is really helping mobilize your leadership and giving you great impact. That's not the conversation. And so I think that we get in this cycle of when you become high achieving, as you're pursuing higher achievement, people are affirming certain behaviors out of you, out of you and it's never friendship. Hmm. That's such a good point. And the other thing is, and you, you are a super high performer. Like I look at what you accomplish and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm lazy. Um, Frank, it's incredible. Like you, you look at what you've done with your life, but work work has its own reward and that's good and it's bad because I often find, you know, if I get a blog post, I feel really went well or an interview that I really nailed or whatever, and they don't all go well and you don't nail them all. But you know, if you have something you're really proud of, that's very rewarding. And you go home, you got to take out the trash. Friendships aren't that linear. They don't produce that much of a dopamine rush every time. Uh, sometimes you're giving, sometimes the other person is. And so it's easy as a recovering workaholic just to bury yourself 
in work. And so I keep, you know, naturally when I'm stressed, I'll just do more work, which is ironically a, a terrible thing. And so that be, and, and the other challenge I think with high performance is you end up leading something at a size. And I found that a little bit at our church and even more so with what I'm doing now, that who do you call when you have a problem who can really understand? Because if you go to like, I love some of my friendships around here, but I can't sit down and say, okay, so when the podcast hits 30 million downloads, what do I do? Like most people can't answer that question. I will talk to you. Uh, I'll chat with Craig Rochelle about that. I'll chat with other people who maybe spend a little more time in that kind of a setting. But I mean, that you don't have a whole lot of people who you can really talk to at that level. And, you know, there are people listening and they lead the biggest church in their town, in their village, in their state. And they're like, yeah, who do I talk to? Because, you know, that kind of result of high performance can be isolating. Comments or thoughts on that? Uh, uh, high performers are oftentimes pretty controlling <laughs> yeah. with, yeah, we with are. Their, uh -huh. their life and their organization mm -hmm. and what they do. Mm -hmm. And so what bigger dopamine hit is there something that you're controlling is performing well, so therefore you want to control more of it. <laughs> and so that becomes your life-giving thing. And, and now, once again, we've got pastors and leaders on here. I know they're giving credit to God and Jesus along the way. I'm not trying to knock that. I'm just saying, like, but you're talking about a dopamine hit. Gosh, if things are performing well, I want to make another phone call. I mean, gosh, mm -hmm. in my young 20s, I'm selling insurance. And initially I was bored. Then I found complicated insurance and really fell in love with it because uh, I was like, okay, I can really help clients. This makes my brain hurt. Like I like this. And so I'm strange, Carrie, you know that. Um, but <laughs> along the way, as I was selling it, everybody was leaving. And I realized it was four o'clock in East Tennessee, which meant it was one o'clock in California. And so when they all left, I was like, I can keep doing this. I'll just call the other coast because they're still just getting started. And I loved it, Carrie, and it cost mm. a lot. It cost me a lot of friendships and time with people early on because I didn't know how to balance that. What I knew was something I could control. I could systematically tell you that with a certain volume of phone calls that led to a certain number of business accounts I would write, which led to additional affirmation and money or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so I had this cycle of I could control that but when I went home and either spent time with my family or broader sense, went to hang out with friends, there was no control in that. Oftentimes I was out of control. We were at a restaurant just hanging out and I don't know when they want to leave and, and I don't know if I want to stay that long and I don't even know if I want pasta. And you know, I didn't have control of anything like in those friendships. But what I found was that, man, if you perform at a high level, you get to control more stuff. And controlling mm -hmm. is fun. I'm not saying it's healthy, but I'm just saying it it does create a cycle um, that that makes you want to just stay in it. Well, and we can cut this part out if you're not comfortable talking about it publicly. But one of the things you and I have talked about pretty transparently over the last few years is when you're used to performing at a high level or you have a high output, time off can feel painful. Like hats off to all the people who write Sabbath books. I think they're amazing. I think it's great. But like one of my struggles, and Frank, I know one of your struggles is, what do I do when I'm home? 
And yeah, you've got kids sports and kids this and kids that, but we've talked about that before. I've had to develop hobbies because otherwise you can only mow the lawn so much, although that is fun for me, right? You can only mow the lawn so much. You can only clean out the garage so many times. And, you know, that, that uh, as Blaise Pascal says, the inability to sit quietly alone in your room or pursue other leisure activities can be a challenge. How are you dealing with that tension? as you've experienced it. And again, if you want to reject the question and move on, we'll cut it out. No, but the answer is really simple. Terribly. Um, <laughs> I'm not very good at handling this at all. I, no, um, I know. I, Thanks I, for going there. I love, I love ministry. I love work. I know you know that I have multiple jobs. Well, you have um, like four jobs, six jobs. Yeah, I don't know. You have a like lot that. of jobs. And I love it. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. it. It's not burdensome. And so that's one of the things that's hard for me outside of maybe watching some sports and certainly hanging out with the kids when they're playing basketball or Layla's doing dance or whatever it may be. I mean, I enjoy doing that. Don't get me wrong. But gosh, if there's a Saturday where nothing's scheduled, that does not, like if my calendar is blank, that does not feel good for me. I'm not like, oh, great. I'm going to really get to recover. I immediately will fill it up with random stuff. Just two weeks ago, my son woke up and called me and he said, where are you? Like this is my 16-year-old. He said, where'd you go? I thought you didn't have anything to do today. And candidly, he was just wanting me to see if I'd make him breakfast. But so he wasn't too worried about me. So um, he is 16. But yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. But I had already left early that morning, went to Home Depot and was just starting a project that no one asked for. I didn't even have until that morning. I made one up because I couldn't sit still. And it, it's a challenge because the work that I get to do is so life-giving to me. Uh, it, it's it's hard. I, I hear everybody talk about hobbies and how I'm damaged goods because I don't have really any hobbies. And, and I get it. I understand what they're saying. But I'm also trying to juxtapose that to not just high achieving and affirmation. And uh, Patrick Lencioni would say, I'm a skillful politician and I've, I can put on the face and I can do all the stuff. I like it. I genuinely like helping churches win through phase or helping our church or pastoring people. Like, I, I love what I get to do. And so now I feel guilty because I should like other things. And so now I'm filling my calendar with other things because I don't need to be still working because I'm wrong if I'm still working. So I just fabricate other things to work on that aren't my actual job. And that somehow makes it okay. And so, I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I, I don't have any answers. I'm certainly not going to write a book on this because I don't, I don't, I don't have any recommendations. I am flawed in this way. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to embrace it. My wife embraces it some. I'm trying to say I'm sorry less. And by that, I mean simply like doing less behaviors that cause me to have to say I'm sorry. Uh, but at the same time, like, man, I really love what I get to do. And I'm not burnt out. Uh, uh, COVID fried me a little, right? I mean, gosh, it was mm-hmm. just hit up. Oh, hit you up went through some. I mean, starting a, a preschool when they're shutting everything down, like come right. on. preschool and events, August two thousand nineteen and mm-hmm. in, in twenty twenty, everything I do gets shut down. That was including church. Like that was yeah. tough, especially as a high achiever leader. Which at that point, like the the month that we closed, March seventeenth, twenty twenty. Like everything was up and to the right. Every investor and church leader that I knew was going, this is amazing. You're crushing it. Achieve, achieve, achieve. And then all of a sudden it just stops. For somebody that like lives 
walks the fine line of, of living for that affirmation, but also trying to be faithful with what God's entrusted in my care and walk that line already. Um, mm-hmm. It threw me for a spin cycle for sure uh, that it took me a while to dig out of. But now, honestly, I'm working really hard. I have, Carrie, you, you check in on me every once in a while to go, man, are you doing okay? I want to make sure you're not burning out. Mm-hmm. I'm at a really good place right now. No, you um, are. So, I won't stop asking the question, but I know what the answer will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm doing okay now, but I am working at a a pretty crazy pace. And so you asked the question, and I'll, I'll go back to my answer. I'm terrible at it, yeah. and I don't. I'm I'm trying to figure out where I should be okay with that versus where I need to continue well, to reflect more. So am I. I mean, on the one hand, you and Jess keep having kids. You've got a two year old at home, and you know, your oldest is, your oldest are in their twenties. So, I mean, you're going to have lots to do at home for a couple of decades, but it does get, it does get quiet in the empty nest years. And I've had to add hobbies. So I just don't keep working and, you know, shared activities with my wife, Tony and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's a, it's, I, I do enjoy work, but I am finally starting to enjoy hobbies and time off. But I find for me, like just sitting around the house is not a good thing. So we have a boat. If I'm out on the lake, we got out the other night. I'm like, ah, okay, this is good. This is good. And then again, uh, one of my sons still competes. He's 27. So we went to a bike race in Toronto to watch him race last night. And that was incredible. That was fun. Still yeah. enjoy that. But yeah. Right now, one of the only things I do is I do um, build Lego sets. Um, it's one of the few things that like, and it's kind of peculiar, me and John Acuff and probably a few other people. And, and but, David Kinnaman, uh, you, John Acuff and uh, David Kinnaman all build Lego. Uh, one of the things yeah. I found is I can't, can't use my phone while I do it. And it never is a race for me. I don't know why. I don't try to put it mm. together fast. I don't open another bag and do it fast. I can just sit there and kind of like click away at it. And there's something about that that's, that's good for me. So I probably spent a little too much money on Lego, but that's, it's cheaper than additional counsel. What do you build? Oh, so uh, the last thing I built was I built the up house from the movie Up for Malachi's oh, room, yeah. uh, for a baby yeah. room with all the balloons and stuff. So that was super fun. And then at Thanksgiving, I built the Home Alone house, which was super oh, fun. Wow. Uh, it's a massive one that we set up for Christmas time and decorate it. So just a little bit of everything, but it's, it's, uh, it's fun. I, I told Jess that I'll stop building Lego and or give them away when I've put one Lego set in every room in our house. Uh, she's not agreed to that, but that's what I've said. Uh-huh. It's the uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. No, I know a lot of adults are into that. And uh, I bought my kids Lego. They're mad at me because apparently one day in one of my purging, they're not mad at me, but you know how it goes in families. And uh, I had thrown out their childhood Lego, which I regret to this day because that was probably a million dollars in Lego in today's valuation. Oh, probably, yeah. So expensive, but we had a big tote full of it and I just gave it away. Shouldn't have done that. So a couple of years ago, I got them like this VW bus and this motorcycle and this bug uh, that like heading off to the beach surfing and that kind of stuff. So they built those sets out, which is fun. That's fun. That is fun. Yeah. So let's talk about the four jobs and then want to talk about multi-use facility. And thank you for this like outline of a book slash treatise on friendship and why so many of us have to work on it. I think, I think that's going to help a lot of people. Um, so what do you do, Frank, in all yeah, these jobs? So, 
<laughs> so of course we, we have Phase, which is a multi-use strategy for churches. Uh, we started a few years ago. So I was co-founder and CEO. I changed my title and handed over the CEO role. So I'm no, now co-founder and church growth officer when it comes mm. to franchised Phase, and we could talk more about that. I'm chief of staff at local church, uh, mm. which is kind of like an executive pastor. Um, we have three locations in North. Atlanta. I love doing that. Uh, three churches in very different seasons. And we're getting ready to launch two more. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Um, and then I get to work with great organizations like Generis and a couple other parachurch organizations where I just uh, like help their organization thrive and kind of give them insight and hopefully some wisdom or at least a fresh perspective. And so mm-hmm. I like to keep several different things going. Um Partly because I think if I stayed in just one thing, I would push too hard. And so one of the kind of diagnosis, in fact, you had me call uh, William Vanderblumen. Uh, Mm -hmm. The two of us talked on the phone on a car ride, so it wasn't any formal thing. I wasn't looking for a job. Um, We just needed a process because you had asked me the question. You were like, Frank, if you did just one thing and focused maybe you could do something really incredible. Like, could you, could you focus Mm -hmm. on that? You were asking that versus Frank, you do several other things. And, well, William had pointed out that just the way I'm wired, um, that it might be good to kind of scratch different itches and be able to kind of float between different things. And on any given week, one takes more time than the other, but kind of ebbing and flowing through those things is really good for, for my brain and how I operate, but I really enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty incredible, you know, because we did go through that conversation over the last few years where you were trying to discern what's next for you as you entered into your 40s. And I think this curious mix of, you know, multiple jobs, including, you know, you were CEO and exec pastor at the same time, plus some consulting work on top of that. It's, it's incredible. Describe the business model behind FaZe. What, what is sort of behind that? Because I get DMs all the time from church leaders who are like, hey, I'm bivocational, or we're looking at building a new facility. We want to make it multi-use. And they're sort of the classic build a gym, build some soccer fields, that kind of stuff. But you have a totally different take on it with the phase family center concept. Yeah, I hope so. And so in Alpharetta, this is what led to the transition away from Elevation, hardest decision in my life, leaving that to go start this. Um, When I got to phase, uh, the first model was simply can we build a building using investment capital and let a church be a tenant? So Mm -hmm. we have events, co-working and preschool, phase runs the businesses, and a church is a tenant. Well, while I was building that one, Mark Batterson up in DC called and said, would you help us renovate the Blue Castle, which is what he wrote about in uh, Circle Maker, the city Mm -hmm. block in DC. We run a preschool for him. Well, When we got those up and going, my phone was ringing off the hook from churches saying, we'd like to partner, but we're in a different season, or we bought an old Kmart versus we're building a brand new building, and we're a mega church. We're doing three locations next year versus a church that only has one location and everything in between. And I realized that if if I'm going to do phase, which is simply a multi-use strategy, it's all about stewarding our building and having greater community impact and the church becoming a community hub again. So uh, how can we have better stewardship, greater community impact? And so I was trying to figure out how do we pivot to serve more churches? Because I could only go so fast if we're running and doing everything. So we made a huge pivot uh, with some great direction from some leaders from Chick-fil-A and some other very influential organizations around the idea of franchising. 
So what phase does now, if a church wants to do multi-use, and to be clear, multi-use is using your space for church on the weekends and that same space for some revenue generating slash community impact resource during the week. So this is mm-hmm. not building a separate building with a, a soccer field in it. And that's for, uh, you know, the community saying the same space. And what we realized was phase could build all the systems, structure, branding, marketing, all the assets, the job descriptions, the policy and procedures for preschool operations for churches and for event operations. So think about your auditorium for bar mitzvahs and quinceaneras and weddings and corporate events. We can build out the framework and structure and help a church have those in their facility without being alone. So they can have their own Mm. preschool without being alone, have their own event business without being alone. Because what I realized was that most churches in America that do multi-use, one of the reasons that they may struggle to either make it financially profitable or to uh, engage with government agencies and, and funding or whatever it may be is because they've all done it by themselves. There's no network or support system. So just like a restaurant is way more likely to fail if it's done by its own rather than with a franchise because of all those systems and structure, we've created a franchise model for churches to bring on a preschool with help and or events with help. So that's the phase model. Yeah, why did you decide preschool? Because there are so many. You've got preschool and co-working space, and then um, you can rent out the auditorium as a theater for community stuff, but on Sunday, it turns into a church. So why preschool as the foundation of the phase model? Yeah, great question. A couple reasons. First, I mean, we already have children's ministry space. It's laid out for children. So, I mean, that that makes it intuitive from a multi-use standpoint. It eliminates some of the setup and teardown. Uh, So it does make it easier. But the bigger reason is in the early 2000s here in the US, everybody in America was talking about healthcare, our healthcare crisis. You know, what are we going to do? It's gone out of control. The costs are high. People can't get it. You know, it was on and on, on every news station, every politician, like the whole US was talking about this problem. And yet the church couldn't really do much to help. Like maybe we opened a Saturday clinic for like very minor stuff, but the healthcare system that was broken, the church had to stand on the sideline while the nation was in crisis. We really couldn't, we didn't have the facilities or expertise to help. Well, now here we are in 2023, our nation is in a new crisis. One of the top 10 concerns of every politician and all thought leaders in America is childcare. Uh, It broke, it was already breaking and it broke during COVID. And yet, here's the cool thing. For the first time in what feels like a long time, the church is uniquely positioned with our Mm. physical space to meet the need, not only in a good way, maybe possibly the best way. We may be the best solution for fixing our nation's childcare crisis uh, would be to partner with churches across America. Mm. And so I get excited about an opportunity where the church isn't just saying, no, 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 we have we have faith to offer. We really think you should listen to us. I mean, we got to keep doing that. Got to keep sharing the gospel. I'm not knocking that at all. But I'm just saying in our communities, people are saying, I have nowhere for my kid to go. I've got to go back to work. Like they're feeling that tension. How awesome would it be if 
in every community, there's a church standing up or a couple of churches standing up saying, we will help with this. I'm not saying give it away. Mm. I'm not saying impact ties and offerings. I'm saying build a model where we are the solution. And now the church is answering a major problem. Well, it makes sense. And I mean, there are some churches that start their own schools, et cetera. So how is this different than a Christian school? Like what, what makes FaZe different than the classic Christian school? Yeah, so a couple things. So uh, when it comes to preschool, so we're talking infants through five years old and then maybe some after school and camps. So we're talking the younger age. We are using the same space. Oftentimes when a Christian school is stood up, it's uh, temporarily using church space until they can build their own buildings. And it's going to basically be its own college or high school campus or whatever. And so then that's not multi-use. That is stewardship of land, maybe influence, but that's not multi-use. Um, with preschool, what we have is we have the opportunity to take our kids' spaces that we're either building or we're ready to renovate uh, and allow them to generate revenue for the school uh, or for the church. Um, they, can, they can create income from that positive cash flow that they can use for rent, pay down debt, or to do other ministry in the community. They can do whatever they want to with that money um, while at the same time engaging the community. So churches that are either struggling to engage the community or want to be known for something more than Sunday morning, because only a fraction of people in the community engage with Sunday morning attendance at a given church. It gives them a reason to, to be spoken of in the community in a positive way and really have significant community impact while at the same time not burdening the programming of the church. And what makes FaZe unique is that when you do it yourself, and this, this is what I've really wrestled with, most uh, church leaders that I work with, they have a smart leadership team and they can stand up a preschool and do it all by themselves if that was the only thing they were doing. But they've got so many other things that they're passionate about mm -hmm. and doing. And so what happens is they stand up a preschool or stand up a coffee shop or stand up something else in their space, but then they move on and there's no leadership. There's no guidance. Right. There's no, now, as soon as there's a problem, like next thing you know, um, the preschool director is calling the executive leadership team to decide how to handle a parent in a very specific situation in the preschool. And mm. it becomes a burden and a distraction. Well, what FaZe is trying to do differently, and this is really fresh thinking, there's not much of this out there, is to go, no, 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 we want you to have it. We want you to choose your curriculum and, and teach the, the, the core principles of the Bible the way you want to teach them. We want to come alongside you. We want to be consistent with your voice and your culture. But at the same time, we know how to manage uh, menus and uh, diaper changing policies and hiring processes with Monster or Indeed or whatever it is and how to list those better to get more response, when to give employees a bonus or when to pay overtime, all those things that just have to be figured out in a preschool business. Um, we come alongside to help that. And the big thing with preschool, Carrie, I want you to think about this. When we did, when the church 20 plus years ago was doing a lot of do-it-yourself preschools, mm -hmm. we were asking someone who had, uh, maybe was an assistant preschool director or had been a teacher before, to now run a two to two and a half million dollar a year revenue business with 40 staff members and 180 kids. And yet they've only been a teacher in a classroom before. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some mm -hmm. flaws in that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that with the church. We wouldn't hire somebody straight out of seminary and be like, hey, we're launching a new campus. 
You're going to have a $3 million building right off the gate. You're going to have um, a thousand people to take care of and 500 or 300 volunteers. And we, we want you to go get them, go get it. We wouldn't do that to somebody. And yet when it comes to do it yourself, um, preschool ministry in churches and or events, we're like, well, they've done a little bit of that before. And yet it's a, it's a robust operation that can be either a blessing to the church and community, or it can just be a tax on energy, effort, and a distraction. Well, and I mean, liability is pretty high with preschool. You get that wrong and you could be in big trouble quickly. The other thing I really like about the franchise model is, you know, if you look at the Chick-fil-A example, you're not having to reinvent the waffle fry, right? We know how to do that. Like, it's like, nope, this is how you make waffle fries. They're going to taste the same at all locations. And you can do a similar thing with preschool. You've got the model. How, how would someone, let's say there's someone listening who's saying, okay, that's interesting. How do they raise money to bring either their existing facility up to standards or um, create this kind of model? Like you've used private investors to really fund this in the past. How would you raise funds for this? Yeah, so it can be done a couple of different ways. Part, partly it can be done out of donations, of course, so like it's mm-hmm. part of a building expansion or whatever. But one of the things that helps with bank lending and conversations is if you are a church and you go to a, a, a lender, the big lenders out there, Christian lenders, doesn't matter. You mm-hmm. go to a lender and you say you're operating and opening a multi-use strategy, it's a negative for you. If you go in and say, we're, we're going to build a new campus and we're going to open a preschool and we're going to do an event business and look at the revenue and, and you're not going to be just dependent on ties. You're going to be dependent on these uh, other models as well. They actually currently put that as a negative because they're looking at one leader and going, how can you possibly run three very mm-hmm. different businesses? So mm-hmm. what you think is actually a positive is a negative unless you have a franchise partner. Then suddenly they're like, oh, you're wanting to do this. This is actually mitigating our risk because you're bringing in experts and now you have right. two revenue sources. So now if you go in and say, we're doing a multi-use uh, preschool with phase and we're, we're going to have our church operation, we're going to have room for growth and all this stuff. Now they underwrite that differently. So when it comes to raising capital, whether it be through traditional lending or through donations, I'll tell you, uh, Pastor Mark Batterson uh, told me mm-hmm. this. He felt like, People were more generous when it came to renovating the turnaround when they found out the multi-use strategy behind the building. So people are going, oh, my dollars are going to go further for the kingdom because you're actually creating a sustainable model uh, for this through my giving. And so some Hmm. of the people that had capacity to give gave even more. He truly believes that because they understood that the stewardship of the building was, first of all, going to be used seven days a week instead of one day right. a week. And there was some other revenue sources coming in to help mitigate costs, actually making it more sustainable to do ministry in a very expensive area. I mean, uh, gosh, to, to run oh, a DC, church, operate a crazy. church in D.C. is almost impossible, right? But if you're mitigating that, that gives people a confidence that you're being a really good steward. Carrie, hmm. it's kind of like, if you think about it, the parable of the talents... As, as you know, you've done plenty of research on this. Um, a talent was worth a whole lot of money, right? Many mm-hmm. scholars are now saying it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. a talent, $370,000 or something like that was one talent. Well, and then you had five talents. Well, when we think about it, if we think about our buildings, 
as though they're talents. We're using them one day a week and burying them in the sand six days a week. And so I'm wrestling with this idea. I'm genuinely wrestling with it going, if we're to be a good steward of these things that God's entrusted to our care, is it really okay? Is it good stewardship to to build a big building, not serve the community, not do something else with it, and just use it for this one small function. And I I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get overly theological. I don't want to read too much into it. But it has been something I've been wrestling with to go, no, no, no. Our buildings are for us to steward. And I want to serve our community. And there's a, a better way to do that, I think. I don't think, and you won't hear me say, I don't think multi-use strategy is church 2.0. Right. People are like, oh, this is the church of the future. No, 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 no. It is a good model for some churches to engage their community and serve differently, period. Like it's as right. simple as that. Um, but I do think people should consider it and wrestle with it. Hmm. Yeah, one thing, I mean, funding's always an issue and the franchise model makes a lot of sense. But when you and I are texting on a daily basis, you're like, pray, meeting with the investors today, whatever. What are some tips? Can you give us an idea of the scope of the money you would need to build, you know, a a phase family center from the ground up, a multi-use facility? And then um, what are some best tips for dealing with investors, private equity that is stepping up to fund this? Absolutely. Um, what I've found is that um, working with investors, communication is key. And I know that's an obvious statement, but let me unpack it. Communication is key. And it's all about fifth grade math. <laughs> fifth grade math is show your work. It doesn't matter if you have the right answer. It doesn't matter if you provide an answer. And same is true, I believe, with border uh, uh, elders, Uh, trustees in your church, uh, investors. It's about communication, good or bad. You're not responsible for all the results of what happens in your church. God's the one moving. I mean, you're just trying to be a good steward of everything. So good or bad, we're being transparent along the way. But I do think we have to show our efforts. And so with investors, I may have got something right or wrong, but I showed them what I was trying. And they'll be like, oh, I would have thought that would have worked too. It's interesting that it works. So so what are you going to do now? So same with trustees and elders. We go in and we're like, well, we thought we were going to grow and and we were really, really believing God was going to grow our church and hasn't really grown the way we thought. And we're going to have to kind of revisit the budget. Well, well, that's one way. And I guess we could try to build some hype around that, but go, well, we're still believing. We're still believing. Or the other option, so picture this, is to go to that elder group or trustees, high capacity givers and or investors and go, hey, here's what we tried. We tried this and this and this. And I know I talked to many of you about this strategy and we thought it was going to work. But you know what? I was surprised. It did not have the impact we thought it was going to have. And so now we're going to try this and this and this for the next quarter. That mitigates so much conversation and burden and stress. And so we're sitting there playing chess and creating worry and anxiety. And usually what ends up happening is we give the results, the numbers, the KPIs, and then we give vision for where we hope to be one day. Mm. But we never do the fifth grade math. We need to show our initiatives. And I found when it comes to the investors, I've gone to them multiple times and go, guys, this didn't work. Remember when I told you we were going to do this? We all kind of nodded our head. I tried it. It did not work at all. So I've had to go back to the drawing board, but here's what I'm trying now or here's what our team is trying now. 
I think that's true for, once again, trustees, elders, people that are donating uh, resources to your church. They want to know the impact, where it's going, the impact it's having, and communicate where we're going next with it. I think it would make all the difference in the world. You know, I'm so glad I asked that question because that's so counterintuitive. What you're talking about is communication, regular communication, and transparency, fifth grade math. Because I'm not an investor in phase, but I think of other companies where I'm an investor. And you're right. They don't always get it right. But when the CEO emails it out and says, hey, we tried this, the market shifted, it's not working, we're going to do this. Uh-oh, we fell short, but we're going to do this next term. I'm not like, give me my money back. I don't care. It's like, I trust you. I don't understand your industry. But there is an innate pressure back to leadership to try to only show your successes, to show them the highlight reel, to say, we did this and we did this and it worked. And, you know, I think pastors are especially guilty of that, but I love the transparency of just bringing them into the struggle. And you find that people lean in when you do that? It's interesting. What I found with the group of investors I have, they're, so they're high net worth individuals from all walks of life. Okay, I mean, everything from airplane engine repair um, to uh, financial equity to Chick-fil-A people to, I mean, you name it. So mm-hmm. all different kinds of walks of life. Um, some are more worried about me. Like they're making sure I'm okay, which is awesome. I'm grateful for those people. And that's kind of where they're, when I give the, when I show my work, when I do fifth grade math and I tell them where I'm going to try next in the formula, they, they almost drop into pastoral care at that point because I've been very communicative. The Mm -hmm. other group shares their ideas. And sometimes those ideas aren't awesome. Um, They're like, no, you don't know my industry. You just happen to be an investor. I'm going to listen, but that doesn't make sense. Um, And and I have to find a way to navigate that conversation. But more often than not, they're saying, hey, let me help. And I'll tell you where people make a mistake. They never ask for the help. Mm -hmm. And so if we're saying we're doing a marketing initiative for our church to get the word out, people don't know that we uh, opened a new campus. And we really thought people were going to show up because of whatever reason. You know, we give a, give a reason for it. And it didn't work. And somebody on the call, um, one of your elders is a, a politician in your community. Um, or they're an insurance salesman for State Farm. Right. They're great at marketing. And when they're like, if you need anything, let me know. If we don't invite them in later for some input and wrestling with our new plan, don't go in blank slate and go, what do you think we should do? I don't think that's very professional. Mm -hmm. But to go in and go, hey, here's what we're thinking. You got any thoughts around this? And they may go, oh, I love this idea. Let me help you with this or let me make a tweak. We're so afraid as leaders to ask the leaders around us for their insight and wisdom because they will give it. Um, that we won't ask because we we may not like what they have to say. But what I found is that if you remain transparent, not, oh, we have a board meeting in six months, so I'll update them then. If we know something now, send out that extra email. It's no big deal. Um, communicate along the way. Do fifth grade math. What you'll find is that there's some leaders willing to step up and help you with it. And so it's not your problem to solve all alone. And yet pastors and CEOs, all the time when things start to get sideways, they actually feel... Like it's more their burden to solve by themselves, which is pretty foolish. If they're not, if their ideas aren't working, you got to bring some other people in, or at least let us know what you're trying next. So your leadership chops are impressive, at least in my view, Frank. And 
I want to ask you the question of how you work yourself out of the job of CEO, because six years ago, five years ago, five years ago, you were building the first phase center and you were CEO, you were COO, you were director of construction. I mean, I remember the blueprints you're pouring over, you're on site, you're making sure the cement gets poured, you're hiring teachers, the pandemic hits, you're in it. And now you're the president and you're working day and a half, two days a week in it, and you've delegated everything. That's an incredible rapid rise. How do you work yourself out of a job? Um, I got a couple of different things. So, so first, growth matters, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to grow to where there's uh, opportunities for other people to lead. You know, I've got to have some revenue or ties or whatever. I mean, obviously that's a factor, right? I mean, you can't hire other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that, that's got to be part of it. So growth is part of it. I do think along the way, um, this is something you've helped me with a ton, Carrie, is to figure out while I had to wear multiple hats at that time, there were still a couple of things that I was best at. Um, and, and what I needed to embrace and realize, and honestly, um, gosh, just being transparent with you, when I went to the investors and said, hey, I think my role needs to change as we switch to franchising, I think someone else is better suited for all the, the legal and systems and ops. And yet, I'm probably better suited to uh, partner with the churches and come alongside them and kind of lead mm-hmm. that initiative and get the word out about this. Um, there was a little bit of nervousness. I had to navigate some conversations there. Um, I do think that part of it, Carrie, while you're asking about delegating how you work yourself out of a job, there has to be an open-handedness. Mm-hmm. I, I, would, I would dare say that of all the people you've interviewed, um, uh, on how many ever millions of episodes we have now, how many episodes do we have? Uh, mm-hmm. We're probably around 550, 570. A lot. A lot. A lot of episodes. You've talked to a lot of people. Very few people have stepped down and or brought in somebody else to be the CEO of the organization they remained in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, they'll tell you about uh, they put in somebody else so they could go run something else. But I think part of it is when you're part of something either in the church or parachurch organization that's bigger than yourself, and you really believe that there's a stewardship to this where we've got to be open-handed to truly have the best people in the best spots, that includes the senior leader. And if I need to focus on something else, I have to be open-handed enough to go, no, 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 so-and-so is better at that. That kind of is more natural for the CEO role of franchising. And so he needs to be in that spot and I need to kind of take a different role. And also we made up a role for me, the, a mm-hmm. job that didn't exist at the time as we were growing uh, for this. So I think if we believe that what God is doing um, through our organization, our ministry, our influence, do we keep our hands open up enough to go, we want what's best for the kingdom, even if it doesn't keep the title of CEO? I will tell you, mm-hmm. there's one person specifically that downgraded me immediately in their mind as soon as I gave up the role of CEO. Like I was no longer the C- wow. an influential leader that was like, oh, I don't need to talk to you anymore. Now, I'm one of the co-founders, and that's still in my title, but literally stop texting me. I mean, the day I announced it, like deal they don't friend, reach real out friend, to me. Deal friend, real friend, deal friend, real friend. There yeah, you go. Exactly yeah. right. I'm like, I'm sitting there going, what? wow, I, I still have the same knowledge, same ability to serve you and help you, uh, but you don't, you don't deal with me because I'm not, my, my letters are different behind my name or beside my name. Uh, yeah, 
I don't know if I answered the question you, you were did, asking. But I want to I want to take a second run at it from a different sure. perspective. That was super helpful. So you're also at local church where you're chief of staff, which is basically an XP role. That's yep. a day and a half, two days a week. Fair. Probably, you know, uh, you know Fran Lamatina. You know yeah. Fran. Um, I met with Fran just recently, and she was trying to ask this question. And she said, "How much time do you give to each thing?" She was trying to figure me out. Mm-hmm. She cares. She yeah, thinks good I'm luck very with that, weird. Fran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, I'm very weird. Uh, she mm-hmm. pointed that out multiple times. In the times. best way, in the best um, way. Yeah, I, yeah. maybe. <laughs> She's not sure yet, I don't think. Good weird. Uh, <laughs> a good weird. Um, but Fran uh, said, kept asking me time, and I was like, gosh, it ebbs and flows so much. I don't have my calendar broke out that way. I have one sure, calendar. But you're not, my, here's my point. You're not working yeah. seven days a week. You've got three jobs. You're not working seven True. days a week. There are a lot of executive pastors here who would say, oh my gosh, I'm six days a week at a church half the size of local church because local okay. church is running what 3,000, 2,000? Yeah, something yeah, like lots that. Yeah, 2,500 or so. Lots yeah. of people. All right. So they've got a church of 1,000 and they're working six days a week. And it's like Frank does this role at, at local church a couple days a week, yeah. less than half time. Fair? Yep. Mm-hmm. How does that not become everything? How does that not just clear out phase and generis and the other stuff you do? so that it becomes this all-consuming full-time job? I'm still here, Carrie. I'm just thinking. Good. Uh, I would say a couple things. Mm-hmm. I would say one is, as a leader, if you're going to take on more responsibility, okay, you've got, you've got to know what's being asked of you as far as tasks, what, what you're producing in your role versus leading and influencing in your role. And my role at local, I do a lot of leading and influencing. I don't create a lot of stuff. I don't have a lot of assignments. I review financials and I hire people and stuff like that. But So there's still tasks to do. But I would say, as a leader, if you're wanting to take on more or you're recognizing you need to get more efficient with what you already have, there's, I, I don't have language around this yet, Carrie, so you can help me with this. Mm. But I believe when you change gears between different functions in your day, that there's an energy depletion between it. So if I do an interview and then I'm going to finish up an interview at lunch and then I'm going to go into a financial meeting, okay? The the amount of energy it takes people to make that mental shift is high. Yes. Um, Cal Newport calls it um, task switching in the hive mind. Yeah. He says it's extremely taxing on your brain. There is research Got behind it. it. Yep. So, so my, my theory with no research and Cal, I apologize in advance because I'm probably wrong. I love you, buddy. I, I appreciate you. You're wise beyond your years, but Cal, here's what I would say. I think if you're taking on more and or trying to fine tune You've either got to restructure your day where there's less tax between those, between shifting gears, Mm. or develop your mind in such a way that that tax gets decreased just by the way you're wired. So I'll tell you, Carrie, you've asked me a, a bunch of times capacity. How do you keep on going? How do you keep doing this? I think the tax between shifting gears for me is almost negligible. If Cal were to give me a test, Okay, my tax from going from a financial report on a spreadsheet to a call with you to something else is very, very nominal. Well, how is that? Because they're totally different tasks. 
Yeah. So to, to um, I don't know if I know the answer, uh, but I'm just saying the energy burn there is insignificant. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's not hmm. a big deal for me to change gears. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's right, Carrie. I'm just, I'm processing out loud saying, I think that tax there for me is, has gotten smaller uh, as I've gotten sharper and gained wisdom. And yeah. maybe it's, um, maybe a little bit of it is uh, my open-handedness with um, uh, being okay that some things are at 80% quality and I have 20%, I could improve it another 20%, but nobody's going to notice but me and learning to let those things go so it doesn't continue to wear. I'm not still thinking about it after I stop the one thing to do the next thing. I'm not, I actually, I shipped it, as Seth Godin would say, when he's like, Fine, get it to a point and ship it. When I ship um, that part of my day, I, I just move to the next. I'm not still holding on or there's not remnants of it, maybe. I don't know. Do you? Yeah, I have another theory. This totally untested, okay. not Cal Newportized. Um, do you think it's because they're new things? In other words, if you've been working on phase all day, to work on phase for five days, most people would discover their battery getting depleted. You know, Monday by Thursday, Friday, the battery's running a little bit low. Yeah. But is it, you know, okay, you spend, I know it doesn't work this way, but for argument's sake, Spend Monday and Tuesday on phase, great. Then you go to local church Wednesday, Thursday, and then Generis Friday. Is it like you get a fresh battery boost every time you switch between organizations? Um, maybe not. I, no, I'm I'm thinking about it. Um, it it definitely uses a different kind of kind of part of my brain, and I think yep. I think I'm energized by that for sure. Um, I think that's energizing for me. I think that's something when you talk about energy and the time of the day and and when you're when you're at your optimum, I think maybe there's another thing to go. What uh, transitions are hardest for you? So if from from a call like this to finances, if that's like mental gymnastics and exhausting, well, don't juxtapose those two together. Get more efficient at that. So I I think what may frustrate your idea a little bit or your question mm -hmm. is. Fran and I talked about energy. And so how much energy is everything taking? And I would say it's 80% or no, I, I told her, I said 60% of my energy is phase, 20% is local. And then I have a bunch left over. Hmm. And so I, I don't think, I, I'm not currently using 100% of my energy um, is the way that she and I are processing. Hmm. Um, how long things take um, I think we schedule things for length of time um, and we are very good at filling that length of time or consuming more. And we don't, um, we don't get things done faster than what we put on our calendar. We're going to waste that amount of time, whether we, it takes that long or not. Um, I do pull forward. And so if there's something scheduled for tomorrow and I get done with this today and I don't have another thing to do, I will reach forward and pull that to today because I don't know what tomorrow holds. So I do that every day. I reach forward. So I don't, um, I don't know if that's healthy. You're smiling at me. No, but I, 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 I do the same thing. Forward. I just okay. crossed a couple yeah. of things for tomorrow off my list today. Cause it's like, Absolutely. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know whether I'm going to get a good night's sleep. Well, no, I appreciate I feel bad because I don't feel like I'm being helpful. No, no, no. This, but so. the mystery of Frank Beeler continues then. So <laughs> this is really 
really intriguing. I, I want them to look at your brain after you're no longer with us and go, oh, that's what it was. Okay. His prefrontal cortex is twice the size of most humans. <laughs> I don't know. It's a really unique and amazing talent. And the other thing people should know, because you wouldn't know this just hearing our conversation, is the organizations you work for are, by and the large, thrilled with your contribution. There's nobody who's saying, oh, Frank's, you know, moonlighting over at Generis or moonlighting over at... No, they're all thrilled with what you bring to the table. So that's a really cool thing. All right. Anything, any other subject you would like to cover or anything, any other place you want to go in this wide ranging conversation? Yeah. As we, just to go back to multi-use for a second, I did just crank out a multi-use ebook. Yes. Um, let's talk about an that. An audio book um, called The Multi-Use Equation. Um, we don't need to get specific. I just want to give it to people. Like I want it to be helpful. Um, it's from the last, since 2017. So we're six years. It's five or six years of my experience trying to understand how multi-use has been approached in the church um, over the last couple of decades versus maybe a better way to do it of refining that multi-use equation and strategy. And so I created it into an ebook and an audio book um, so that, because lots of your people like to listen to stuff, so we converted it to an audio book um, just to serve people well, uh, whether they, they are just wanting to wrestle more with the thoughts and the ideas around it. We're just trying to transfer some of our learnings and we weren't going to wait long enough to put it into a formal big book and, and put a lot behind it. There's some really simple, um, clear flaws in the way we've approached it in the past and some things that we can do now, uh, whether you partner with FaZe or not, it doesn't matter. There are things that we can do now to really bring some clarity to the vision and the direction that we're going with multi-use moving forward. Uh, so we just want to serve churches with that. I want to make sure that's available to people. Cool. Well, we will link to it in the show notes. And just so you know, the mystery of Frank continues. You texted me last week. Hey, man, yeah. I know this is coming up on your podcast. We have this book, but I decided most of your listeners are listeners. So I put this audio book together. And I thought, of course you did. Of course. You probably just like one <laughs> afternoon was like, let's put this together. Let's get the audio book done. Of course you did. Uh, is there an easy URL for people to get to? We will link to it in the show notes, but... Uh, Yes, is the answer. Carrie, I don't know it. I probably should know it. I'm sorry. You, f you found a gap in the brain. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, uh -oh. First uh -oh. mistake. The first glitch. mistake. First mistake ever. The glitch. Uh, that's all uh, right. No, you know what? We'll yeah. uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. And if you have yeah, it, work. Uh, let my team know and we'll put it in the tag so I can For sure. That. Yeah, yeah, I'll get that's it to great. you. Yeah, I'll find it. Uh, and then you're F. Beeler on uh, Instagram these days. Where else are you hanging out on the interwebs? Yeah, Instagram and LinkedIn are the two that I'm I'm kind of exploring right now. Twitter's where I get some news, but Instagram is like more cool. for fun and just connecting with church leaders. And uh, LinkedIn, I've just kind of been re-exploring it lately. Yeah, it never it doesn't go away, and it keeps getting bigger. Oh, and Face Family right. Center. What's the if people want interest uh, like information on franchising? Where do they find that? Absolutely, phase.center backslash partners. Um, they can learn all about it there and download some resources and free stuff. And if there's anything that we're doing at Phase that you see helpful, but you don't want to partner with Phase, well, that's okay. We'll give you stuff. We'll help you. And if you want to have a conversation with us, that's fine too. We're happy to serve. Mm. Frank, so thankful for you. Thank you so much for this. What a rich 90 minutes. This is super fun, Carrie. And gosh, thanks for... Uh, 
uh, going deep with me on friendship and us yeah. wrestling with that together. I thought that was going to be 15 minutes and here we are. So that was, that was really good. Really rich. It's great. Thanks, Frank. Well, Scott Galloway is talking about loneliness and the decline in friendship. Uh, We see it in the Barna data again and again that most people in ministry and leadership feel alone. And I hope this is an antidote against that. So anyway, I'm very, very excited to share this with you. And if you want more, we have links to everything we talked about, including the stuff at Phase and beyond. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 577, where you can even get transcripts. If you want to find a particular moment in the episode, transcripts are easily searchable. And uh, well, we do that because we have support from you and from our partners. So onboarding new volunteers, you want to do it right. Check out servehq.church for volunteer onboarding that works. And by glue, it makes it incredibly easy for unchurched people to connect to a local church if you use glue. If you're a church leader looking to reach more people, go to glue.us slash reach and get started today. So next episode, well, we start something brand new. It's a mini series. I call it the Integrity Series. Like a lot of leaders, I'm pretty alarmed about what's happening in the church today uh, and in leadership in general. Just people really going off the rails toxic culture, abusive culture, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to have a conversation with people like Chuck DeGroat on narcissism in the church, Eric Peterson, Eugene Peterson's son, and Wynn Collier, his biographer, Tim Keller's biographer, Caitlin Beatty, who wrote about celebrities for Jesus. But we kick it off with the one and only Henry Cloud. And we talk about trust, finding a way forward after a moral failure. We're going to touch on narcissists again, why they love yes people, and on getting duped. Here is an excerpt from that episode. So I knew a guy on a plane. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm researching trust. And he said, well, I don't trust anybody. And I learned a long time ago, you can't trust people. He said, you can't trust. I only trust myself. And I said, well, you're psychotic. I'm a psychologist. I ain't tell you. You're crazy. (laughs) He said, what do you mean? I said, look out the window. You're 40,000 feet. I said, did you get yourself up here? You trusted a couple of guys up there in the cockpit, fly this thing. You trusted somebody. How do you know they didn't put chocolate milk in the in the gas tank? You, you trust all the time. You drove to the airport, trusted people stay on the other side of the road. But my hunch is you've been burned personally somewhere, and there's a woundedness to that. And I unpacked the story, and you could see how that's lived itself out. He's got a very small life in some key relational areas and other areas. You will never build a big organization if you can't trust people. That's coming up next on the podcast. I'm very excited about this. I hope this is a good summer listening series for you. Also coming up, once we move through the Integrity Series, we got Paula Ferris, Dr. Scott Lyons, I love that. The one and only Kevin Kelly. Michael Bungay-Stanier is coming back. Judah and Chelsea Smith. We also have Miroslav Wolf, Dave Ramsey, Richard Foster, and a whole lot more. That's coming up on the podcast. And again, wherever you're listening, if you would subscribe, uh, we would appreciate that so much. Thank you for your ratings and reviews. Thank you for all that you do uh, in leadership. And I just want you to know I'm in your corner. And speaking of being in your corner, I've created a newsletter called On the Rise, and I would love for you to sign up for it. It's absolutely free. 
just go to ontherisenewsletter.com and I include so many curious, interesting, hopefully helpful and relevant things to help you lead better. So inside On The Rise, you'll find articles on everything from, well, I include a lot of Tim Keller. That obviously is not going to continue indefinitely uh, with his passing, which we will talk about on this podcast in the Integrity Series. But I include that. I include interesting stats about the Christian faith. I include some really curious things. For example, how historic figures spent their time or a brief history of medieval sleep or, well, a lot of other things, AI as well, in the newsletter. Just a few links that I think are going to be really helpful in curating your knowledge and helping you lead better. So you can go to ontherisenewsletter.com, subscribe for free. You can join over 85,000 people who receive that in their inbox every single Friday. Thank you so much for listening. Man, I really appreciate you and uh, what you're doing. And I just want you to know we're in this together. And I hope our episode today helped you thrive in life and leadership.